0: Stacy and Roger Dale, if you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 31. We are going to pick up right where we left off last time, such as the nature of expositional preaching. One of these decades, we're going to get out of Colossians, I promise you. Only got two messages left. So we're going to get there. But today, we are going to cover uh, verses 31 to 36. But the key verse from last week is still the key verse today, and it's found there in verse 30. And you know it already. He must increase. I must decrease. That's what John the Baptist said. And as I said last time, that's what every minister should be concerned about. The fading recognition of the preacher and the increasing glory of Christ. If we're going to do this job right. Some of you may remember years back, we watched a video called The American Gospel. I still have DVD copies of that. If you haven't seen that, let me know after church. I'll get you a copy, and you need to see it. Uh it kind of as a State of the Union of the American Church. It was made a couple of years back, but it's still relevant today. And in that video, it showed us examples of many modern-day evangelical ministries in America where far too much is made of the minister, far too much is made of the preacher. But where true gospel ministry exists, Christ will be the focus. And not the preacher, not the elder, not the deacon, not the minister. And as the people of the church grow in grace, it should be that as you grow spiritually, the minister decreases in your eyes and in your life, and Christ increases. The minister is just pointing you to Christ, and you're seeing more of Christ through the preaching of the minister than you're seeing of the minister. Now, all of this comes into clear focus in this passage that zeroes in on John the Baptist. And let's start today. I want to read through what we covered last time to get into context with the rest of the passage that we will cover today. So it'll kind of all come together. So first, I want to read again what we already went through verse by verse. In verses 22 to 30, let's read together. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salim because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven you yourselves are my witness that i said i am not the christ but i have sent, been sent ahead of him he who has the bride is the bridegroom but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice so this joy of mine has been made full and here's the key he must increase but i must Decrease. So John the Baptist, the man that Jesus called the greatest man. The man with the greatest ministry that any minister has ever had in the history of the world. What was his ministry? Heralding the actual coming of the Messiah into the world, physically, bodily. This man who was also, don't forget, so tremendously empowered and influential and popular as a preacher in Israel. It is from this man that we learn, as I said last week, the important lesson of humility. Remember that the time period here is those months where the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist are overlapping. As we read, Jesus and his disciples were ministering out in the countryside of Judea, outside of the city of Jerusalem. So what did John do? He went a whole different direction. He goes north. Get out of Jesus' way. He goes to Samaria. And for a period of months, remember, they were both doing the same thing, only in separate areas, of the nation, and they were both preaching repentance. They were both preaching the kingdom. They were both preaching the arrival of Messiah. They were both baptizing people. Remember, it was a baptism of purification. It wasn't Christian baptism yet, as we know it today, because the cross hadn't happened, the resurrection hadn't happened. This was to symbolize the people's readiness for the arrival of Messiah. That's the kind of baptism that it was. And then they had this discussion that arose as we just read. John's disciple and a Jewish man about this baptizing. And they get to talking. And more than likely, the discussion went something like this. Whose baptism was more important? John's? He started it. Or Jesus? Whose ministry, by the matter of fact, was more important? And of course, John's disciple are in John's corner. They're with him. They're having a hard time with this. Look again in verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Now we looked at that last week. They are jealous for John the Baptist. They can't even say Jesus' name. Remember? They just said, He. And then they do that exaggeration, and all are coming to Him. And then John gives that tremendous answer in verse 27 A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John is right on. Then he reminds them that. I've been telling you all along, I'm not the Christ. What are you guys not getting about this? And then he gives us that great illustration in the text about being just, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. And and, and in just being that, look at the end of verse 29. And just being that, he said, so this joy of mine has been made full And then, of course, we get the great verse at the end of verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. So the followers of John the Baptist tried to bait him, if you will, into jealousy. They couldn't do it. Because John recognized that being in the ministry as he was is something that he didn't deserve to be in. In the first place, it isn't something that any minister earns. It it, it certainly isn't a vocation that any of us who are pastors are worthy of. It is a gift from heaven to be a minister of the gospel. It is. Remember I told you last week? It's a mercy. It's a grace. It's something that God gives you when you don't deserve it. It's a gift of grace, just like every other good gift that God gives to all of us sinners. Let me tell you, the greatest privilege and mercy that God has ever or will ever give to me in my life will be the opportunity to be the pastor bivocationally of Providence Baptist Church. The greatest mercy towards me to allow me this opportunity to do this with my life. The greatest gift I've ever, the greatest privilege I've ever or will ever be given. And and John understood that about his ministry that he was not even worthy of this mercy that he had been given in, in the way that he served, especially him, his heralding the actual Messiah. And he lets them know very clearly, look, fellas, this is not about me. I am not the Christ. This is all about the one that I have been pointing to all along through this whole deal. He has to increase. So quit talking like this because I have to decrease. Now next, starting in verse 31, this is what he's going to do. He's going to shift the focus, as we saw last week, from I must decrease and he's going to shift over to he must increase and the focus here in these verses in our text for today in verses 31 to 36 as we talk about he must increase is the preeminence of Christ this is more than just here is why i'm focusing on Christ this text we're going to look at it's it this is more than just the simple statement He must increase. Oh, my goodness. Embedded in verses 31 to 36 is a very full and a very rich Christology given by John the Baptist. But that big fancy word just means the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ is is revealed in these verses that we're fixing to look at in very profound terms. In this passage alone, John is going to give us five reasons for why Christ must be the focus of ministry and never the minister. That's what we're fixing to see. This passage firmly establishes the absolute supremacy of Christ, the deity of Christ. Like so many places in Scripture, this is clear, clear evidence that absolutely silences the man-made hippie Jesus of today's culture. That we even hear from some churches. That we even hear about from some ministries, That we even hear in the Jesus is my boyfriend song that people sing in churches today. If you really want to know who Jesus is, then listen up today because you're fixing to hear it. You're fixing to get a full dose about who Jesus is, and you're going to get it straight from God Himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The power to proclaim Christ really and truly at its base level, just comes from Scripture itself. It's not about the cleverness of the preacher or how articulate the preacher is. It's not about giving good illustrations. I don't give good illustrations. It's it's not about pulling emotion out of people whenever you're preaching, as many ministers do. The real Power to convince people about the identity of Christ comes from Scripture itself. And that's what we're going to do with the rest of our time for today. Because as I study this again, it's just it's really incredible of how much of an understanding that John the Baptist had at the time he was alive of who Jesus is before Jesus even really got started in his ministry. And what we have here in verses 31 to 36 is John just, remember, continuing his testimony to these disciples, and they're all upset about Jesus's ministry. So he's just continuing to tell them about Jesus. He's he's given them why it is that he must increase, and now he's going to flip it. And he's going to affirm to them, to make sure that they get it, the absolute preeminence of Jesus Christ. And the first reason that we see here for exalting Christ is that Jesus alone has a heavenly origin. And the New Testament establishes this fact right out of the gate in Matthew 1. Joseph has a dream. We just studied this on Christmas Eve. And in it, the angel tells him not to be afraid to take Mary, his wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Remember, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being translated means God with us. How much more clear can you get than that? Jesus has a heavenly origin. Look at verse 31. He who comes from where? Above is above all, comma, change. He who is of earth is from earth and speaks of the earth. So there we have a contrast. And the Greek word for earth here simply means planet or more deeply earthly life. It doesn't have any moral connotations, any at all, kind of like except Translate transaction that with the word cosmos, you remember we've studied that many times, which means this world system, this evil world system. That's not the word that's used here. This simply means any earthly human being, us, is of the earth. We're from the earth. We speak of the earth, but the contrast, he who comes from above, meaning from heaven, is above all. And, and there's only one person. There's only one person who is from heaven. Everybody else is of the earth. None of us. No person in human history existed before they were born into this world in heaven or anywhere else. Okay? That's the crystal clear teaching of the Bible. Only the cults and the new age folk and the reincarnation people teach that we once existed before we were born into this world. That is false Doctrine in every occasion. None of us existed anywhere before we were in our mother's womb. Okay? John the Baptist is making a clear statement that all of us fall into this category. We are all of the earth, from the earth. He himself, from a human. Viewpoint, therein, folks, lies our limitation. And you need to understand that. Therein lies the very reason and the purpose and the need for our humility because we are just earth creatures, earthbound creatures. On the other hand, he says, he who comes from above is above all. Notice in verse 31 that he says that at the beginning and at the end of the verse. He wants to make really sure that you get that. Now John, the Baptist knew this about Jesus. Do you understand how really amazing that is? Because he was just a guy like us. An important guy, but just a guy. And yet, he, he... He understands this as strong as his testimony was to these disciples who were trying to bait him into jealousy and his constant affirmations of not being the Messiah and his constant declarations about who the Messiah is, even with all of that, when he was in prison, knowing that he was about to lose his life, everything he knows. Matthew tells us that he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? What? Wait. What about everything that you've been preaching? What's going on, John? This is the same man who affirmed Jesus as Messiah again and, again and again and again and again and again, loudly, clearly preaching it before he ever went to prison? He was there at Jesus' baptism and he did it. He saw the Holy Spirit descend. Think about that. He heard that voice from heaven at the baptism. And then he gives us this incredible testimony in this text before us today, this robust Christology he gives to his disciples before he was ever even put into the prison. And he asks, are you the one or are we to look for someone else? What's happening here? Well, I can tell you. What's happening here is he's human. He's of the earth like us. He's languishing in prison. Prison is a terrible place. As you know, I've been to jail. I wasn't in a jail like John's. I got a honey bun in the morning in the Paris prison. Okay, I'm way worse wherever he was. And he's there languishing. And what he anticipated was supposed to be happening wasn't happening. Where's the kingdom? Why am I in jail? Where's the big power display from the Messiah? That's what he was waiting on. Where's the overthrowing of the Romans? I still got guards outside my cell here. Nothing has changed. Where is all the promises of the establishing of the promises of of David? It's not happening. Remember, that's what all the Jews were looking for. Okay? In the Messiah. Didn't get that all that comes later. Okay? This is, again, is a testimony to John's earthiness, if you will. J.C. Ryle, who we quoted today, I thought it was Luther, but I looked it up. It was J.C. Ryle. The best of men are men at best. The best prophet who ever lived, save Jesus himself, lived with some elements in his fallenness and his flesh that showed up in some doubts in that prison near the end of it. I don't know about you, that gives me some comfort. When I'm talking about dealing with my own flesh and my own remaining corruption. But you need to understand that Jesus is of a completely and totally different nature from John the Baptist because he is of a completely different origin. He had no human as we all did, as John the Baptist himself did. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Just let that thought sit on your head for a minute. That's how the only divine person that ever has existed passed into a human body, through the Holy Spirit. He is from above. Nobody else in human history is from above. He has a heavenly origin, and it is impossible to miss this fact in the Bible, if you can read, just from the testimony of Jesus himself, which destroys any idea of the CNN, Discovery Channel, History Channel, man-made Jesus that we know of up today. In John 6, verse 33, Jesus is referring to himself and he says, for the bread of God is that which, look, comes down out of heaven. He's speaking of himself and gives life to the world. And then in verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. And then in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Heaven, are you getting it? Is everybody getting it? He's trying to get you to get it. And there are many other verses just like this that don't leave any room for doubt about the origin of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every person has to deal with the fact that this is the claim that he made about himself. There's no more incredible claim than a human being can make than to be God from heaven in human flesh. And how you respond to that claim, your term and jury termed. Period. We go back to John 3. And we see here clearly, I, I, I'm, I'm just baffled by it. I shouldn't be, but I am. John understood this divine origin of Jesus. So that's the first point in John's Christology here. That right there establishes the supremacy of Christ. What? That he is of a heavenly origin. And that only he is of heavenly origin. So that's the absolute supremacy of Jesus. Now, second point in this Christology, if you will, of reasons for exalting Christ, reasons for why. Price must increase and the minister always must decrease is what he has seen and heard and of that he testifies. If he came from heaven, then obviously he has seen and he has heard things that we have not. Right? What he knows, he knows from first hand Eyewitness, if you will, divine experience. Now, we already established back in John 2 that he knows everything. There's nothing that's known and he doesn't know. There's nothing he created that wasn't created by him. He knows all the thoughts of every human being simultaneously, all at one time. This is what we call in theology his omniscience. Jesus is the only man who never needed to take in information from anybody else. Now, It's it's beyond mind-boggling to try to sit and just think about how in his human nature, not in his divine nature, which he's 100% of both. You try to figure that out, you won't be able to. In his human nature, the Bible says that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. What I'm telling you is he grew legitimately as a little baby and a child. Jesus wasn't teaching theology at the age of two, okay? He allowed himself to be conformed to the development, the natural development of a human being as an infant and into a toddler, just staggering to think that the creator of the universe allowed himself to go through that process, okay? But by the age of 12, pretty clear that he had gotten to the point of a full adult sense of his mission. Just read the words when he was in the temple, he's telling them what's going on, and it's really beyond our full understanding when we see in scripture that there were times in the life and ministry of Jesus where he displayed his omniscience, but then there were other times when he self-imposed, restricted the use of his omniscience. And that's, that's part of what the theologians call his humiliation. That's why there were times when Jesus could say things like this. I don't know the day or hour when I'm going to return. Well, that's in his human nature. And at that moment, he had self-imposed a restriction on his omniscience. He put limits on it. And even though he could do that, nobody could have possibly add to his knowledge. You understand that? This, folks. Oh, that Jesus so far apart. from I mean, you can't even really begin to grab everything we know somebody got to teach. us. We need information. For example, if we want to know about heaven, we, we need to get information given to us by someone who is from heaven, or we're not finding it out. Jesus knows everything there is to know. From the realm of heaven, think about this, in eternity past. Look what he says in John 8 and verse 38. I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. Boy, what do you think those things are? In other words, the common identification of these two members of the Trinity eternally, which is encompassing their complete omniscience. That's what we're talking about right there in that verse. So, Jesus has all heavenly knowledge. We, on the other hand, struggle at best to grasp heavenly things. And even with our Bibles, we only just begin to scratch the surface in our lifetimes of the heavenly things. Even in the realm of knowable and understandable theology, the older that I get and the more I read and the more I pay attention to others who are pastors and theologians, the more I realize I don't know. I mean, in the realm of knowing theology, I'm on the low end of the totem pole, I can promise you. So John the Baptist says in verse 32, what he has seen and heard of, that he testifies. And then look what he says. And no one receives his testimony. At the back end of verse 11, Jesus said the same thing. You remember this? You do not accept our testimony. Now, let's get all this straight. Jesus said that as a whole to Israel. And now John is saying, No one receives his testimony. John is is affirming what Jesus is saying. As a whole, in general, people are rejecting what I'm saying. People are rejecting what Jesus is saying. It's, It's not consistent with what they're used to. It's not consistent with the system that had been developed of Judaism over the centuries because it's too heavenly for one thing. So first of all, John affirms the superiority of Christ because of his divine origin. Secondly, because he's omniscient, he knows what God knows and all that heaven knows. And John says, and of that, he testifies. Now, thirdly, anybody who affirms Christ affirms that God is true. The truthfulness of God is bound up in the affirmation of Christ. Look at verse 33. It starts out with, He who have received his testimony. So, there are some who have received his testimony. Understand this. Let's clear this up. The statement, no one receives his testimony, is a general statement. That's not an exclusive statement. So John is saying, no one receives his testimony in general, but there are some, there are some. He who has received his testimony, look at this, in 33, has set his seal to this, that God is true. Now, let me tell you, that's a profound set of words right there. Because let me ask you, does God speak the truth? He can't lie. He's truth personified. The Bible says he cannot lie. And then if that is true, then you must believe in Christ. Why? Because God sent an angel down here who said, this is Emmanuel, God with us. This is Jesus, who will save his people from their sins, the angel said. Because God spoke at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because God spoke on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. If you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God, then you're saying God lied. You understand that? People who say, well, I believe in God. I just don't know about Jesus or I don't know about Jesus being God. I don't know about that. Well, those people who believe that are completely spiritually, totally blind. Okay? If you reject Christ and who he claims to be and who the Bible clearly says that he is, and then you affirm at the same time when you reject that, that God is a liar. I mean, there's no wiggle room out of this. But contrary to that, verse 33 says, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. You can't say God is true and at the same time reject Christ as defined by scripture alone. You can't do both. Every single prophecy in the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus Christ is a point at which you either validate God as speaking the truth or lying. It was God who said, this is my beloved son. If that's not his son, God is a liar. 1 John 5.10, the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a what? liar because he has not believed in the testimony of God that God has given concerning his son. It's inescapable. Nobody has the right to say, I believe in God and I believe God is true and then reject Christ as defined by scripture. Nobody. Christ is not who God said he is Then we are really in serious trouble. Because the biggest promise that God has ever made, the clearest identification that he ever spoke was a lie. And if God is by nature a liar, then you can chunk your Bible straight out that window right there. We can all go. God is true. Everything that he said about Christ is true. And Christ is who he said he is. And he provides the eternal life that he declared he would give. In other words, everything he said was true, is true. Now next we go to a fourth principle. and this great Christology of John the Baptist, Jesus possessed the full presence of the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now let me tell you, This is so far above us. We're way up there in the Trinitarian air right here, what we're talking about. One of the ministries of the Spirit was to bring the words of the Father through the Son. so They all work together, one God, three persons simultaneously. Everything that Jesus did in his ministry was the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why in Matthew 12, when they called him Satanic, and they said, you do what you do by the power of Satan. Jesus didn't say, you blaspheme me. What did he say? You blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And the reason for this is many, many miles deep. Okay? Part of the incarnation of Jesus was to become human. Part of his incarnation was to restrict some of the independent use of his attributes. Part of his incarnation was to yield over his will in ways that our little pea brains can't understand to the operation of the Holy Spirit in his humiliation as a human being. Now, we know that John the Baptist, the Bible tells us, was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's. Womb. Remember that? Right? From the very time he was conceived, the Holy Spirit took special care in the life of John. His ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I'm here to tell you, not to the same degree as Jesus. Okay? Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. Immeasurably. It means infinitely to the level of his. Infinite deity. If you think you grasp that, trust me, you've not. Okay. So what you have in Jesus is God the Son, who is equal to God the Father in His fullness, and equal to God the Holy Spirit in his fullness, one God and three persons all at the same time. It's extraordinary. It's without measure, it's without limit, it's without boundary. Expect a God you can't fully understand, as I say all the time. He's God. So let me ask you, why in the world would any minister ever be exalted about anything? Anything. We are just dirty, muddy clay pots who are up here just like little baby talk trying to give you the word of God. John had a measure of the Holy Spirit, John had information given to him, but John is an earthly man like me, not compared at all with the one who comes from heaven alone, who knows everything from eternal omniscience, who gives perfect testimony, establishing the truthfulness of God and who had the Spirit in infinite fullness one more point final point this uh, establishes the superiority of Christ and that is this Christ has received all authority from the father look at verse 35 the father loves the son look at this and has given all things into his... And I'm telling you, John the Baptist is saying that before he ever even went to prison. While Jesus is still beginning his ministry. He, it's, his, it's extraordinary that he understood. He understood the whole plan of redemption. <clears throat> he understood the, the reason for the creation of the universe that all of it is about the Father loving the Son and creating a universe which He can bring glory to Himself by redeeming humanity and giving a bride as a love gift to His Son out of that mass of humanity of people that He called to Himself. John understood this. This is a deep, staggering truth to understand before the New Testament was ever even written. Now, the Apostle Paul understood this. He tries to capture some of this with some amazing language in Ephesians 1, like in verses 20 to 23. Look here. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and I want you to notice this, and seated him, past tense, Right? Raising from the dead and seated him. So, raised from the dead. Then what happened? Seated him at his right hand. That's the position of power in the heavenly places right now after the resurrection, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Now, watch this. Not only in this age, not only right now, but also in the one to come. And he put, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, past tense, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I'm here to tell you that's now language. He rules now, and this is a point where I agree with my I-mill and post-mill brethren. This rule is happening now. We're not waiting on it, okay? We're not waiting on this to happen at the thousand-year millennial reign. This language right here is talking about right now. He's ruling now. He's not ruling in his complete form, of course. He's allowing for the plan of redemption to take place in which there's much evil that's happening. But make no mistake, he's ruling and reigning now. And then also, in addition to his ruling and reigning now, God's eternal love relationship with his son results finally and fully in God giving to his son all of his creation in its final form In the new heaven and new earth. So, no matter what your eschatology is, we all get there. It's just how you get there is what makes up the differences, right? And for all eternity, in the new heaven and earth, Christ completely and fully and completely, truly reigns and no sin and all the things that we talked about earlier this morning. And John the Baptist understands this. This is. Folks, a full Christology from John the Baptist. And then, like any good preacher, he closes it with an invitation. Look at verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God. Abides on him. He's one of them fire and brimstone preachers, too. Now, but wait a minute. I want you to see something. Why do you think it goes from believing to obeying in one verse? You catch that? Look at it. I can tell you why. Because to believe on the Son of God is a command, it's not a suggestion. He who believes in the Son has obeyed this command. He who does not believe in the Son has disobeyed this command. And that person will not see life, this verse says, and the wrath of God abides on him. It's really simple. Every person has a choice, eternal life, eternal wrath. There's there's no gray area. There's no middle ground area that you get to go to to purge it out. So John the Baptist ends up a gospel preacher. His head is cut off because Herod was so pleased at the dancing of the daughter of Herodias that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked for And being prompted by her mother, as we read in Scripture, she said, give me on a platter the head of John the Baptist. What a nice girl she was. And think about it. What a really sad, pathetic, ugly, horrible way for the greatest man who ever lived to have his life ended, have his head cut off. Paraded in this terrible event that they were having in Herod's palace there. His disciples buried the body, and then they went and told Jesus about it. But I can promise you that John the Baptist died very a very satisfied man, a content man. His joy was made full, even when he had doubts, because he had decreased. Christ had increased, so we have to ask God: God, please give us the grace to have it be true of us that more and more in our lives we decrease, and He increases until we are in His presence and we see Him as He is for all. Father we thank you lord incredible verses that John the Baptist has just given us this great doctrine of Christ Christology oh how what a mercy when we talk about mercy lord being a mercy to be in the ministry what a mercy to understand Christ at that level in his life before Christ had even really barely just gotten mm-hmm. his ministry started certainly before the New Testament was and even then John had doubt and had to go ask the question you guys question answered and he died in man. Lord help us to realize the strength that the war with And help it to motivate us to fight it with all that we've got so that we live to your glory out of thankfulness for who you are and what you've done. Lord, as always, if there are any here who have not bowed the knee to Christ in saving faith, I pray you would take the word preached today, and as you do, combine it with the power of the Spirit to bring us to you. yourself In Jesus' name